Hey everyone, there's two things that you need to be made aware of before we jump into this episode. One, we have our church or Leading Saints Church History Tour happening in July of 2020. You can see all the details at leadingsaints.org slash tour, but we're starting in at the Hill Cumorah, going all the way to Kansas City, Missouri, and hitting so many of these precious, sacred church history sites along the way. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. I'm sad to tell you there's only there's less than 40 seats left. And so if you do want to be a part of this, you've got to head over to leadingsaints.org slash tour to see all the, the information, where we're going to stop. Uh, my wife and myself will be there, and we're excited to join you on this. would be a perfect Christmas gift as the holidays are approaching to uh, go come with us, with your spouse or whomever it is, and uh, let's visit some of these sacred sites. And uh, we're going to talk a lot of leadership along the way, going to do some interviews, and it's going to be fantastic. The second thing I need you to know about is November of this year, 2019, November 16th, we are having Leading Saints Live, a conference called Leading Saints Live. And we have five awesome speakers that are going to be there presenting with us. All the information is at leadingsaints.org. If you go to the homepage, you'll be able to see it, register. We only have, uh, I think the room seats about 200 people. And it's at the Salt Lake Community College Miller campus in Sandy, Utah. But we would love for you to be there. It's all day Saturday on November 16th. So go to leadingsaints.org and you can see all the details. This is the Leading Saints Podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Kurt Frankum, your host of the Leading Saints Podcast. Just, you know, trying to mix it up a little bit, try something new. And uh, I welcome you. This is great. Here we are again, another week. We release these episodes every week. We've shifted from uh, releasing these episodes on Sunday and actually are doing it on Saturday now. And if it is released on Sunday, that just means uh, we are behind and we did our best. So if you're new to Leading Saints, Leading Saints is a podcast that we produce that's connected to a nonprofit organization by the same name. And our mission is to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. So if you're a Latter-day Saint and striving to be better prepared to lead, you are in the right place. Now, there are quite a few listeners out there who have no former leadership experience or formal leadership calling at the moment, but that's okay because we're all leaders in some aspect, whether it's a mentor to a son or daughter or just being a good citizen in your community, right? We are all leaders in some capacity. So I welcome you. You may not know this, but at leadingsaints.org, there are thousands of articles there. If you are one that just listens to the podcast and hasn't taken the time to go to leadingsaints.org, uh, you should do that because there's some good stuff there, some phenomenal articles that uh, will never be heard through the podcast stream because, well, we're doing interviews here. And this interview today, you're going to like it, quite unique. And I was actually recorded this before this past conference, which was October 2019. I recorded it just a few weeks before that. And uh, it really applied to Elder Oaks' talk, his first talk, President Oaks, I should say. His first talk where he talked about the dynamics of, of being sealed in the afterlife and what's that like, what we know, what we don't know, what's doctrine, what's not doctrine. Because I sat down with Tanya Benyon, and she is a good close friend of mine who tragically, when she was 23 years old, lost her husband uh, who died at a young age, uh, obviously was not something she planned on. And there she was finding herself in a situation where she was single, but also sealed to somebody. And back in the dating scene, right? Now, uh, it can be kind of tricky when the ceiling and eternal marriage is such a prominent part of our doctrine and our culture that, uh, you know, as she's dating people and mentioned to them, well, I'm actually have been sealed before my husband passed away and I'm sealed to him. 
oh, it gets a little sticky. Well, how does that work? Okay, we can't be sealed right now, but maybe later. Well, unless we both die. And, and there's some policies and it can get tricky. And so I thought it would make for an interesting episode to have Tanya tell her story and tell her experience what it was like being a young widow in uh, the, our Latter-day Saint culture and what her experience has been like remarrying to a wonderful guy, Jeff, who is a close friend of mine as well. And kind of the stickiness, the, the trickiness of it all as they have tried to figure out what their sealing situation looks like. And they're actually in the process of applying to cancel the sealing with their first husband and uh, get sealed themselves. And uh, how did that decision come to be? Well, Tanya is going to talk about that fascinating story. And really, my hope is listening to this, if there are any leaders that run in this situation where they have a wonderful young person in their ward who unfortunately has become a widow or widower earlier than expected, what they can expect by and what should they understand with this. And hopefully you can make their situation maybe more positive than Tanya's was. Not that Tanya's was a complete disaster. She came out of it pretty faithful and, and hopeful. But nonetheless, I think there's a lot we can learn from Tanya's experience. So here's my interview with Tanya Benyon. Today I'm uh, in Holiday, Utah, my hometown, sitting down with Tanya Benyon. How are you? I'm great. Awesome. Now we connected through various methods. We usually actually used to be in the same stake. And there was one opportunity where I heard a little bit of your story. And we're going to get into that story. But first, tell us about your background. Now, what do people need to know about Tanya? Well, I'm a mother. I am currently married. Uh, I have one son. I served a mission to Japan, wow. the Japan Fukuoka Mission, long time ago. I'm getting old. Like 2005 or something. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I love photography. I love to travel. I'm a graphic designer and a web developer by profession, work from home so that I can also be a stay-at-home mom and do the PTA thing whenever I want. Awesome. Cool. That's the main thing. And you're originally from Utah? I grew up in Wyoming. Oh, I was wow. born in St. Louis, Missouri and moved to Wyoming and spent most of my life there. Went to the University of Wyoming, went to BYU and finally graduated at American University in Washington, D.C. Wow. That's fantastic. And, and you, pretty traditional Latter-day Saint upbringing? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Jumping through all the hoops, going on a mission, right? Like the typical experience, which is great. I mean, it's a, an effective experience. So, and I think that's sort of where our your story begins is every Latter-day Saint young woman imagines herself at some point getting married and that, that marriage being in the temple. That's and, right. And so, take us from there. When did you meet your, your husband? Well, I have a whirlwind romance with my first husband. We met at a singles ward in Washington, D.C. And... Within, uh, we dated for six weeks. I was actually had dated somebody at BYU and was kind of still on that one and trying to decide what to go <laughs> with. And finally decided that Bailey was the one for me. And before I went back to school, I got engaged and went back to BYU, even though he was out in Washington, D.C. And after a month and a half said, why am I out here? So I quit school and I went back to, went back to Washington, D.C to get married. Uh -huh. A month later, he got sick and we got married. We got married, met and got married in under six months. It was wow. just under six months. <laughs> Which isn't out of the ordinary it's in our not, culture. It's not, but right? I didn't think that's what I would do. <laughs> it's always the ones that say they're not going to do it. I know. Do it, right? <laughs> so I did. And within a month of us getting married, we found out that he had cancer. Wow. And So let, let me kind of bring some context of his background. Was he raised in the church? So he was not. He was a com convert okay. of 
Like only two years by oh, wow. the time I met him. Okay. So he was new in the church. Yes. And, uh, but nonetheless faithful and was excited about uh, your relationship. And Correct. And what, what was, so was he from DC or what was he doing? He there? was in, he's from Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. And that's where he grew up and had moved out to work for the government after finishing college. Okay. And so he, I met him when he had just first moved out to Washington, DC for that. And I was just home for the summer with my parents from BYU. So I wasn't really meaning to stay out in Washington, D.C. either. Yeah. And you had uh, returned from your mission at this point, obviously. And uh, yes. you, that was sort of the next step in your life. You were looking for right. marriage and you found a great guy. Right. Okay. So you move out or you, do you where'd you get married? We got well, married in the Mount Timpanogos Temple. Okay. So we came out here because all of my family was here and we decided we didn't have family, a lot of family out in D.C. So we might as well at least go to one people. Yeah one person's family yeah. that could attend the wedding. Okay. So was he the only uh, member in his family at that time then? Or? Not technically, but yeah. Okay. But he was only, you know, engaged in the gospel. Correct. Okay. So as a new member with, with him, you know, just a couple of years in, in the membership within the church was, uh, I mean, how did he see that ordinance? And was it just, it wasn't even a question that that's where the marriage would happen. And even though right. all his family maybe wouldn't be in the ceiling room. And it was really hard for him. Yeah. His family really had a hard time with us getting married in the church or in the temple. And so we did a ring ceremony afterwards so that they could kind of be a part of it. But but so there was there was a little bit of tension, but that's where he wanted to get married. Yeah. So you get married and then just literally a few months later, he, he gets sick? Six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks into and the what, marriage. And like, was it flu symptoms or like what, what did that sickness look like? He had kidney stones. Mm. And while he was at the hospital with the kidney stones, we noticed the lump on the back of his neck. He had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he was in surgery the next day. And when he came home afterwards, I just remember being on the floor. Well, I guess this would have been the day that he found out that he had cancer. Just laying on or crumpling on the floor in the middle of the living room. And at that point, I kind of knew I would be a widow and it mm. would probably be soon. Wow. So it was progressing rapidly. No, he was also a CIA, CIA agent. Okay. So I figured either his job is going to kill him or his health is going to kill him. And So, I mean, did you know he was an agent or like, it, I mean, the, yeah. the typical story is that, well, my husband's a well, mechanic. He wasn't, and- I guess he wasn't a CIA agent. He was an operative. But he was in the yes, that he Department worked. of Government. Yeah. Yeah. So was he off doing James Bond missions that you could never know well, about? Well, at or? this point, he was just... a technical person. Uh-huh. By the end, which we were only married for two years, three months, he had done a couple of things. Okay. So, so there's some things that he couldn't talk about. Right. And, and you were okay with that, obviously. You it married just is what that. it was. Right, right. So, but nonetheless, his, he is very sick and it is not looking Yes. Good. Yeah. And where does it go from there? Well, he almost died eight different times while we were married. Different things. I mean, some of them were really bad car accidents where he got rear-ended because we were freeway drivers getting to and from work. Another one wasn't uh, somebody gave him aspirin instead of a Tylenol at work and he's highly allergic. And I really thought he was dead by the time I got to him because he wasn't, I got to the hospital before he did, but apparently the ambulance had come to his office. So we just had lots of different times. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of hospital rides or ambulance rides, lots of hospital visits. So that made up the bulk of my relationship with him was just this on again, off again roller coaster of medical stuff. Yeah. So marrying a, a CIA guy, you sort of thought, man, he's going to be in some sticky situations. I, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know what he does on some of these these trips. And so 
he could be in danger. Mm-hmm. And I need and you sort of reconcile that with yourself that you may lose him earlier than than expected. And that didn't bother me as or worry me as much as his health. Yeah. His health, I it, the spirit just kind of said, You're gonna be a widow and it's wow. Gonna be sooner rather than later and you're probably gonna be young. And how soon did it come? Two years, three months. So I was I was twenty four when he died. Wow. So twenty five? I don't remember now. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting too old. <laughs> But nonetheless, a young married, very young, uh, young woman, right? So, so when when he did, I mean, was it the the cancer that progressed, or I mean, is that what's on his death certificate, or is it there's? We a have no idea, actually. Really, Jeff, will, my current husband will tell you. I think the CIA did it. Other or, of my or friends, circumstances, did it. not that the government did it, right? Some other government, well, maybe. He wants to have fun with it. <laughs> so, yes, but I came home and found him dead. Wow. So we don't know. So it wasn't like, oh, he's really taking a turn for the worse. Uh, hospice no. comes in, like he was just gone. Week, two weeks before he died, we had gotten the all clear that the cancer was gone. Really? So it was a total surprise. So it, he was on the mend that you thought like, oh, this is great. Yeah. We're, that's behind yeah. us? No, he was pretty sick the week before. And every blessing he had gotten up to this time, which he had had quite a few blessings, always said he'd recover, we'd be fine. And this last one said we were visiting family out here, out in Salt Lake, and it was the first time it didn't say he'd get over it. It said he'd make it back to D.C., we'd be fine, but never said he would recover from this. And within that week, he died. Wow. So you come home and you're the one that found that he had had passed. Wow. Yes. Came home and found him. And a a traumatic experience, right? I mean, did was that... Yeah. (laughs) Is that how you categorize it? I don't... Yeah, I was definitely in shock because the first thing I did was call 911 he had had an, a car accident um, a week, two weeks before that. Somebody had rear-ended him and his neck was, in, he had really hurt his neck. So when I'm on the telephone with 911, they said, okay, we need you to do breathing and chest compressions. And they, so I'm doing that as they're walking me through this. And they said, okay, can you see the chest rising? And I'm like, well, not really. And they're like, Are you, is he laying flat? I said, no, he's on the couch. They're like, you've got to get him on the floor. And my first instinct, now, mind you, I know he's dead. The way I found him, there's no doubt in my mind, he's 100% gone. And, and he'd been that way for several hours, would you mm, say? About an hour, hour and a half, because I had talked to him within that hour and a half. Okay. This was about 6 p.m., and I had talked to him at 4.30. Wow. And everything seemed normal. I mean, he wasn't feeling well. He wasn't feeling well, but yeah, it was, I love you, see you at home. Uh-huh. So I'm worried about when I'm dragging him onto the floor thinking... I'm going to hurt his neck, even though in my mind, I know he's dead. So I know I'm in shock. So when actually I take that back, the first thing I did was not call 911. The first thing I did was call my parents because again, I know he's dead. It's from the way I found him. There's no mind, no doubt in my mind. So I called my parents and said, I need you to get up here now. Bailey's dead and Uh. basically hung up the phone. The next thing I did was call another friend that were kind of pseudo parents and family in the ward to us. And I knew that they could get here within three or four minutes where the other one, my parents would take a half an hour. And I called them and miracle of miracles. This is a family with eight kids, extended family, extended children are in town as well. Ones that I didn't know very well. This was a family I had dinner with every single Sunday night, kind of Bailey's pseudo family. Mm -hmm. And they were going out to dinner. Everyone had coats on standing in at the doorway. So they literally arrived at my house within about two to three minutes because they were ready. They were ready to go. So I know mm-hmm. the Lord just had them ready to be able to help me. Yeah. Then I called 911 gotcha. because I just knew I needed some support. 
and it was good because the 911 kept me on the phone with them doing mouth to mouth and chest compressions yeah. until they came, which is not a fun thing because the taste of death is awful. Mm. That taste stayed in my mouth for at least six months. Different things I would I would eat reminded me of it and I'd get nauseous again. It was absolutely horrific. And I knew he was gone, but 911 doesn't know. And yeah. so they just have you keep and doing certain it. certain liabilities that you, know, you <laughs> right. have to walk you through. And even when they came in, they said, do you want us to try to revive him? And I kind of laughed. I'm like, yeah, go right ahead. I mean, there's, again... If I had thought there was any way, I would not have said that because I would not have wanted him as a vegetable. He would not have wanted that. But it was so clear to me he was gone. Yeah. Go ahead, do whatever you want to do because at this point, he's gone. Yeah. He's just gone. So I, I want to bring a lot of respect in, to, to Bailey. That Just tell us, what, what was he like as a person? What do you remember? What, what enchanted you about him as, as a husband as, as, you know, that led you down that relationship? He was, well, I thought he was extremely handsome, of course. <laughs> Very funny, extremely smart, very loving. Every day he'd call me two or three times a day just to say, hey, love you, and he'd hang up. We'd leave notes for each other. We both loved to travel. His love for the gospel. He just was the knight in shining armor for yeah. me. Yeah, and that's what every girl wants to mm -hmm. marry, right? And right. So so the, the paramedics come, he's obviously gone, and and then a funeral happens, and and you are in a new phase of life that you never could have expected. Right. Uh, so wh where do you even start to pick up the pieces from that point in your life? Yeah, trying to pick up the pieces was the hardest part. Hmm. For a year, I stayed at my same ward. My mom got me into a grief group. So I did a support group run from a Catholic hospital, run by Catholic nuns. But I was in a group for 60 and younger. And here I was at 25 and the only LDS person there. So Nobody in my group could really understand why I was so distraught that I'd never get married again. And they just didn't understand. Nobody's going to want somebody that's sealed to somebody else, but they don't get the sealing uh -huh. aspect of this. They just say, you're going to get married again. So the group was really hard. And at some points, I didn't want to go and understand why I was going. It was only for eight weeks. And I realized that by week six, I was getting a lot out of this because I was talking about it all the time. Mm. And one of the things that I learned at this group was there's certain li major life events that if you can try to not have them happen at the same time and keep them separated, it's the best for your mental health. So major things like change in job, moving, death or divorce, mm -hmm. those kind of major things. So their biggest thing was try to stay in your home. Don't move. Don't make any big major changes for a year because wow. you're already going through a lot. And was that helpful then? Or was that Very much. Advice? Okay. So, because it kept me in my same ward, my same apartment, same friends, my same social network. Because I would think like being in the same house, it's like that would remind you so much of of your husband, right? That that would, the, and maybe that's not the bad thing, but sometimes people think, well, let's get you in a new cir uh, circumstance so that you can sort of move on. And of course, we'll still remember your husband, but but it was a good thing to stay in that. At first, it's absolutely hard. So the first month I stayed at my parents' house just on a little trundle bed with my sister because I couldn't come back. That's where he mm -hmm. died. It wasn't just that we had lived there. It's where he died. Yeah. So that's where I'm picturing when I walk in the house is his death. But after a while, it's the memories that you have there and remembering and feeling him there and mm -hmm. his clothes are still hanging in the closet and there's some comfort with that. And being able to stay within your same social circle, especially going to church, these are people that will usually, not always, maybe talk to you about him. So it's not yeah. like 
he was never on the face of the planet. Yeah. Because the problem is otherwise, it's as if he never existed. So you need people around you that remember who he was. Yeah. But at the same time, especially at church, people don't know what to say to you. So they don't want to hurt your feelings. So they don't, so they kind of ignore you. So I had friends that came over twice a week, three times a week. I mean, we had friends over every single night. There was a couple, two different couples that we did everything with. They never once came over again after he died. I was completely by myself. Big plug for visiting teaching and now ministering. My visiting teacher and I and my companion and those that I visit taught, we had become friends because we do things like going out for ice cream. And so they became my rocks. They were the only ones that would talk to me. At church, nobody knew what to say, so they nobody talked to me. And I was lucky. I was a primary teacher. And so my primary children talked to me. And I didn't really have to worry about other adults because I just kind of focused on my kids. And I had one child in particular, because for a year, I'd go to church and just cry. Sit in sacrament meeting and cried every sacrament meeting because they're talking about families. Now I don't feel like I'm going to have a family. I'm by myself completely. And this little girl came and she just put her hand on my back every Sunday and sitting with me. She oh, left wow. her family and her family would let her and she sat with me every Sunday at church, which was amazing and wow. got me through that first year. Wow. And I don't know what it is about our, our nature. And I don't think it's just in our culture, but when someone goes through a traumatic experience, when you, you don't know what to say, because you want to like, uh, I don't know if we want to say something. You don't want them to cry. Yeah. You don't want them to cry. You don't want them to feel bad. And if you say something that does that, well, it's your fault when it's reality, it's the circumstance, right? And so we give this, you know, quote unquote space or, you know, we'll, we'll give them some space and they go through. But the more people I talk with and interview that have had something traumatic happen, like a death, the thing they said is most helpful is when people just would come over and just sit and just be there, you know, that would reach out and, and connect. And that's really what helped. And even in the hallways of church, just, oh, I remember when Bailey did this, or I remember when he did this. Talk to me normal. If I cry, I'm already crying. Yeah. So I don't care. Just talk to me like normal and, and, be, and bring up stories. And if I cry, just know that those are tears of joy or even pain and sorrow, but they're tears that are needed because it means so much to me that you remember him and are talking about him and not trying to avoid me. Yeah. And it still makes you cry, but that's okay. Like, that's totally okay. Right. You're going to cry regardless and, of the shame. And let me take care of myself. Yeah. If I, if I can't handle it, I have every right to just say, I can't talk about this right now. Yeah. And let me worry about that instead of ignoring me. Yeah. No, that's awesome advice. So, and intriguing that you, you talk about these support groups you'd go to and you say that, you know, obviously they weren't, they weren't Latter-day Saints, so they didn't understand the dynamic of there's a ceiling ordinance here. And in our tradition that a woman can be married to multiple, can be sealed to multiple men, but a, a wife, <laughs> but a man cannot be uh, sealed to multiple to the same you just did that opposite. Okay. The men <laughs> what, can what be... I'll pass it to you. You, you, you describe this. <laughs> men can be, married, can be sealed to multiple wives while they are alive, but women can only be married, can be sealed to one man at a time while she's living. Right. And it's sort of this, uh, this, this policy, this, uh, I don't know how, how to describe it, but it is what it is. And that's correct. And that's can be very concerning that now, you know, you do want to be married and you don't want mm -hmm. family, you want kids and that would require you to get married. But now you have this, this part, this stigma uh, that you carry around that, oh, well, I can't be sealed to you. And that's an important ordinance that every man wants, right? So trying to date again, especially at a young age, young widows are the worst about this or the, have the, the most difficult situation because their dating pool of people are still 
people that have never been married right. before. They're young. They're not divorcees. They're not widowers. They're ones that are getting married for the first time. And of course, if they've been brought up in the church, they want to be married and sealed in the temple. And to be to the idea of not having that is not an option for them. So they don't want to date a young widow. Yeah. My friends and I, so I did start a young widow support group for LDS women, and it was awful. Most of the men wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. Wow. So you're kind of in the church being young. It would, And I had divorcee friends, divorced friends that were my same age, but it was much easier, and it is much easier to be divorced in the church young than a widow being young because the ceiling issue is not an issue. Right, right. So is that the next step in, the, in your story? Is there anything else with, with just how you managed the trauma of it and, and, and process that, that, that we haven't touched on. My biggest advice is to talk about it every chance you can. Hmm. Because I noticed that as I talked about it at work, at church, with my friends, with my family, the more I talked about what was going on inside of me and I wasn't stuffing my feelings, I wasn't stuffing everything that was going on in my life, I healed a lot faster than my other widow friends. Hmm. And it was also through helping others that... I was healing, but it was because I was processing my emotions and not just sitting on yeah. them. So my biggest advice when you go through trauma, talk about it, find people to talk to, find people that will be understanding and not judgmental. Or start a support talking. group like you did. Or right? just build it and they will come, Yeah, which is what I did. And so you're still in DC at this point, right? Yes. And uh, so how do you go about, obviously this is before Facebook, you know, you can just put a Facebook group together and make it work. So how did you go about creating this support group? Well, my first one was a 9-11 widow oh, wow. because people in my singles ward knew. And the Liz is my very dear friend who's been through everything. We've been through everything together. She was my next widow. And so people knew of her because she was in the stake and knew about me. And it took months, took four or five months after that for us to finally connect. But she was my next one. And then- So she was a 9-11 widow? Yeah. Oh, wow. And then I was friends with a group of people that- Another, like a sister in that group, was married. And on the one-year anniversary, her husband died of brain aneurysm. And so they hooked us up. And so a lot of it came from word of mouth, but also because I was not shy in telling my story. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I would think that starting a support group, you think, well, I, I think I need a, a therapist in the room to sort of, uh, you know, facilitate this. But you, no. didn't, you didn't wait for that. You just got together and had it's, dinner. And, it was dinner, really, yeah. most of it, and talking because- most of it, you don't need a therapist. There are some absolutely yeah. times you need a therapist. But at the beginning, you just need to talk. Yeah, You need to talk and talk and talk and talk. And, talk. and it's one of those things that you can talk with other people and it helps to talk with other people that haven't experienced this. But when they have, you almost don't even have to communicate everything. You, they just say, I, I know exactly and how you feel. that's the biggest reason for finding people that have gone through what you've been through is we have shared language. And so I'd get halfway through it and they'd just be, I get it. There's no backstory. There's never trying to figure out what the feelings are behind it because we get it. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said for finding people that have gone through something similar. And for me, I needed women that were young, LDS with no kids. Hmm. And that was the biggest key because I had found some that had kids, but in my mind, I'm never going to have kids again, or I'm going to never have the opportunity to have kids because my husband's dead and I'm, nobody's ever going to want to be with me again. Right. Like that's the state of mind that you're so in. So that yeah. is absolutely the state of mind that I'm going to grow old by myself without kids. Mm. Wow. So you need women that get that, that I don't have to explain that to. They're feeling the same thing. They don't have kids. They're LDS. They're young. And nobody wants to date them either. Yeah. 
So what was the dating at, like at that point? I mean, did, were you proactive in trying to get back in that scene or did, did that state of mind just really give you paralysis of, of even trying? After a year, it was very clear that the Lord just said, it's time to move. And at first, I thought I was moving to France. I had some friends there and I got ready to move to France. And then all of a sudden, no, you're moving here. And so I moved from Maryland to Virginia, which was just on the other side of Washington, D.C., but to a singles ward. It was called Colonial Ward. And it's a huge singles scene. And it was that it's time to get back into the scene. But I felt I was damaged goods. So I didn't place very high value on myself. So I got into situations that probably weren't the best until the Lord said, why? Why are you damaged? This was not your fault. You do not need to settle. The other blessing I got was Two weeks after he died, I got called to work at the Washington, D.C. temple. Hmm. So I spent the next five years every Friday night at the temple, which was huge for me because that's kind of date night. And so I didn't have to sit at home worrying about that. You always had something on your calendar. Yeah, for Friday nights. So that was... That was probably the biggest gift I was given was working at the temple. Any idea, did you feel like that calling and that assignment came with intention of from the, those local priesthood leaders saying, let's get her involved somewhere or? Apparently they had already thought of extending that calling before Bailey died. And so they said, we were going to extend oh, okay. it to the two of you and then he died. But if you would still like it, you can. Oh, wow. But even at the temple, I noticed it. My supervisor, I was having a conversation about how nobody wants to date me because now it's been a year or so and I've been trying to date and some didn't mind, but most of them, when they when it started to get anywhere serious, just even after a few dates, and they start realizing the ramifications of dating somebody that's been married and sealed, it dropped hmm. very quickly. So I was talking about this with my shift supervisor at the temple even, and I said, look, you have a, a son that's around my age, just older than me. Would you ever set him up with me? Dead silence. And it was <laughs> oh, no. so clear. She... Agreed. She didn't want to. And here I am, a temple worker. It's not like I'm a slacking LDS person. And she wouldn't even want to set him up with me because mm-hmm. of the ceiling issue. Yeah. That's what I wanted to go next to ask you about. Just that dynamic of, because nobody, I doubt anybody ever said, we can't keep dating because. Some, be- <laughs> not to me, but my friends, they yeah. absolutely did. Yeah. I can't do this anymore wow. because if you won't break your ceiling for me, I'm not going to keep dating you. Yeah. And and sorry, that's such an interesting dynamic that, that, uh, so it would often come with just that the relationship, I mean, at some point, would you bring it up at some point in the, in the relationship, second date, third date, you'd say, Hey, by the way, I was pretty vocal about it because I didn't want to throw people off. Yeah. You don't want to lead them on. Exactly. Then, so yeah. I was pretty vocal about it. Most people knew when I started the into out, there right. and the word gets out. But if though if there was new people and they didn't know, I brought it up pretty. I figured out ways to slip it in, even if it was just things like, "Oh, well, when my 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 late husband da 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 da," mm-hmm. because I didn't want to put them in that uncomfortable position. But there were a few I could name names that were amazing, and one in particular, his name was Ben Monson, and he just said, "I'm not going to let this be a problem." And so he went and he talked with his family and he did the research and he said, "We can work with this." So there were absolute people, my current husband being one of them, right. that said, this does not have to be a deal breaker. Yeah. The, the most important thing is your testimony. And can we work together on this? Yeah. Because everything else can be worked out in the eternities. Yeah. You know, and this is an interesting concept in our theology that um, we have these remarkable doctrines that are so vast and 
they're huge blessings and they're so wonderful and we study them and they're they're awesome but then there's there's these situations like this that that we we then try and simplify those doctrines to the point of like oh I can't I if I marry you we can't be sealed so therefore like I'm I am not fulfilling you know the salvation that I'm supposed to be doing and and in reality like we have such a loving graceful God of course you think he's going to say like oh well you married the girl that uh, was sealed to somebody so we have a special a special room for you. Like, I mean, that's just not, not going to happen, right? But in our minds, in our culture, that that's sort of what, because it doesn't follow the narrative that we had planned, that we would be sealed to a girl in a temple, right? I spent a lot of time in President Schultz's office. He was, when I first started working at the Washington, D.C. Temple, he was the first counselor in the Temple Presidency. And I mean, I'm, I'm just barely a widow, I'm having, I'm struggling with my memory. One of the things that comes with grief is memory loss. Hmm. I'm having troubles memorizing my lines. I'm frustrated. I'm sad. And I remember spending lots of time in his office and with his wife. And at one point saying, I'd rather be dead. It would hmm. be better to just be dead or leave the church because it would be so much easier. The ceiling issue would not be an issue if I yeah. left the church. And he said, okay, go ahead. And I'm like, <laughs> I know I can't leave the church. But I just have to say it. And so, you know, just vocalizing all this. But by the time I got remarried, President Schultz was the the president of the temple. And when I was contemplating getting remarried, I said, well, what is this going to do to him? Because what does this do for his salvation and him not being sealed in the temple? Here we are both temple workers and we can't even get married in the temple. And he said, look, the temple blessings really are for after this life. If you are living worthy to be going to the temple right now, there is nothing that you guys are missing out on in this life. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that the Lord is going to look at your husband and say, thank you for taking care of one of the daughters, my daughters, when this was a big sacrifice for you. And somebody that rejects you for that purpose, it will be held, he will be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And so after hearing that, I finally went, okay, I'm not putting my future husband at a disadvantage. This was years of painstaking praying and coming to this realization that I was not hurting the next husband that I would have because I didn't want them to not have the temple marriage also, the temple ceiling. So that that weighed heavily on my mind. But finally, when I realized, look, at some point we can get sealed after we're dead, both dead and nothing, he's not missing anything in this life, I can move forward with a relationship. And, yeah. But I had to really search that out before I even got close to marrying, when I started seriously dating different people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that perspective that you yourself had to get to a place that you didn't see the men that, that were taking you out as, uh, I'm going to damper their spiritual progress. I'm I'm going to weigh them down with this. That No, that take that off the table. And this is going to be a fruitful, beautiful relationship regardless of these spiritual technicalities, right? And part of the problem or part of the difficulty in getting to that point, there are so many articles out there from the Ensign, from General Conference, so many articles about widows. And there is not one that I have found about a widow remarrying. Hmm. There is not any that talks about how do you remarry and the implications of that, especially for a young widow, because usually the older, if you're older getting remarried, they're not worrying about the sealing issue because you're probably already with somebody that's been sealed and they're doing a for this life anyway type of marriage. And 
the companionship. But for a young widow, it's a major deal. And so I had nothing to go off of. I was having to chart new waters every time when the new... And Liz and I were doing this together. We would both collaborate and say, okay, this is what I've learned now. And this is what I've figured out now. And at one point, I remember her calling me and saying, did you know that they've come out with a new ruling, a new rule that says you can't get married for time only in the temple anymore? And I said, there's no way. And she said, yeah, it just came out. I know exactly what date it was. It was November 12th, because that was my husband's, my first husband's birthday. So I remember what it was. And I had, I was working at the temple that night and I came into President Schultz and said, okay, now there's this. And he says, no, I've never heard of this. And so we went into his office and we were talking about it. And I said, this is what I've heard. She was getting it through a friend who was a temple or a mission president. So he finally said, fine, brought the recorder into the office. We called Salt Lake right there with me in the room. And they said, yes, she's right. And then he went and he opened his mail and it was in the mail that day for him. So he was wonderful because he was working this through with me as well. And we were learning. And that's been my experience through this entire process is I learn things before my leaders do. And Mm -hmm. I'm having to educate every one of my leaders. In fact, I remember my current husband, I'm skipping ahead, but when we got married and we were having fertility issues and we were looking at adoption, we learned we couldn't adopt through LDS Family Services at the time because we were not sealed in the temple. Here we are. We're both totally upstanding members of the church, but we can't. And I remember talking to somebody at LDS Adoption Agency, the head, it was the head of the department. And I was telling her what I was up against and saying, is there any way that we would be allowed? And I told her the circumstance and she said, oh my gosh, I'm kind of in your same situation. When you learn more about this, will you come back and talk to me about Mm -hmm. it? And teach me. And I'm like, I don't want to be the one learning this and having to teach all my leaders. But every one of my leaders, I have had to be the one to teach them what what it is and what, what, and sometimes what the rules are. Right. Because they don't have this, they're dealing with divorces, usually not widow situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's two things that stand out. One, that it was really helpful for you to have a leader to go to, to one, just offer you hope of taking off the table that this isn't, this technicality isn't going to catch you in the end. You know, this is, you should have hope and encouragement that this is all going to work out. Like that message coming off clearly from an authoritative priesthood leader was powerful and helpful for you, right? And I absolutely needed that. Yeah. And then the second part is that you also needed, which is nobody's fault really. And that's why I hope podcasts like this will maybe get that ball rolling, that you needed an educated leader because it was discouraging to be the person that was educating the leader that was supposedly supposed to sign off on these various, you know, ordinances and recommends and things that to get you to the point where you wanted to be, right? I am still not sealed currently. And I've been working with my current bishop this year and I've been teaching him. Yeah. I mean, this is and not his new. Heart. It's not. No. Right. Yeah. No. My point is this has been, I've been doing this for 20 years now and I've always been the one teaching. Yeah. And it's not stopped yeah. in 20 years. So when you do, uh, here's your opportunity with vast uh, leaders talking, like, what do we need to know about, which they're all there if we go out and, and hunt for them, they're in handbooks or you call Salt Lake or talk to temple presidencies or whatever, and they can look it up. But what are the basic items that you're educating leaders about with this dynamic? Well, now I wish I would have had a bullet point <laughs> list in <laughs> well, front of me. Let's act like you do. We, all right. I'll come up with some time. of them and, and I'm sure more will come up. The first one is that you're not 
denied any blessings. If you can hold a temple recommend right now and you're not sealed to your current spouse, like I'm not right now, mm-hmm. neither one of you are denied anything. We can hold all the right callings. Well, that I'm not sure. There might be some ones higher up that since we're not sealed, he might not be able to do. But for the majority of the time, we can hold all the current callings that we want. There's no temple blessings that are being denied us currently. The next one is if we're not sealed in this lifetime, we can get sealed in the next one. So if the sealing is for eternity anyway, then it'll be fine because yeah, I'm going to get it. Past, right? Yes. So <laughs> it's going to happen no matter what. Everybody knows. My son knows the first thing that as soon as he can, he gets us sealed. If it hasn't happened in this lifetime, he gets us sealed. Mm-hmm. The next, probably the one I should have started with is God is just. Yeah. He's going to make up all of the lacking. So as long as you are living the way he wants you to live and in full accordance with gospel and following Christ, everything will work out. That's mm-hmm. the biggest number one is we need to have faith and not the faith of a primary child. Well, maybe because they have the pure faith, yeah. but we need to live to a higher, higher, just know it's going to work. Yeah. If faith, I mean, if you really want to look at it, faith is a, is a belief, not a knowledge. So this entire gospel is faith-based. We don't know it is. So if we're already living our life based on the fact that the gospel we believe is true, why can't we believe that he can make up for this as well? One of the things that helped me the most, I remember sitting in President Schultz's office, was he brought up Ruth, the story of Ruth, and how Ruth married Boaz, and he Boaz was to give offspring to his brothers. And I just thought, if the Lord made this rule way back then that the next of kin had to marry the the widow to give her offspring, where's the ceiling there? He's just took somebody else's wife is the way they're looking at it to give the previous husband offspring. If that was then, he's got a plan. So he has a plan for us if we just have faith. So it really comes back to just having faith that everything will work out. The one that I learned this year, because I've kind of gone through a crisis with this whole thing, my husband really would like to get sealed. And so I'm to the point where do I need to break this ceiling so that I can get resealed mm-hmm. or sealed to my current husband? Because he's been really patient for 15 yeah. years. Yeah, it's not that he's years. demanding it or no. I mean, he has a lot of respect for your first husband. and Right. Yeah. But I always felt like if I broke my, hu- my ceiling with my first husband, he's lost. I told you he was a convert. He's not sealed in to his family. Yeah. So if I break that, who's he sealed to? Where Jeff is, he was born in the covenant. He's got that ceiling. He's got his family. Now, not with me yet, but he can have that after. Mm-hmm. And so I have really not wanted to do that to Bailey, especially because Bailey's not here. So I feel like I am taking away his free agency and his ceiling without his consent. Yeah. I mean, maybe I can get it spiritually from him, but he's not here. And I'd much rather be able to do this all when we're standing in front of each other on the other side and say, who's supposed to be with who? Yeah. But I don't get that. I have to make a choice. But I always felt like if I break the ceiling with Bailey, he's kind of in limbo. And I, I knew that's not true in my heart of hearts. Right. I knew that wasn't true, but logically, I just could not wrap my hand around it until this year when I finally put together that the ceiling really is two-way. It's horizontal and it's vertical. 
And if I break the horizontal with he and I, the ceiling that goes vertical to God is never broken and he's not left out there. And I needed to get that. And the other one was, and this is the hardest one, and I know it's hard for my for Jeff to hear the current one, is I really think I'm probably supposed to be with Jeff, but again, how am I supposed to know that? Bailey's been gone for 20 years. If he was to walk back in this room, what would my feelings be? Yeah. I don't know. And I don't think it's fair to ask. And I've had 15 years with Jeff, but I've only had two years with Bailey. And it's not fair, but I loved him. We mm-hmm. had fabulous relationships. So it's not really fair to compare. Mm-hmm. And you get caught in that, and right? And I get really caught in that. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing because I feel like I'm being disloyal to both of them. Which we can get into later, but that is exactly what happens when you get into the form of breaking your ceiling is you have this massive disloyalty. I didn't get sealed to get unsealed. I make those covenants very seriously. And so to have to break that, I feel like I'm a bad person to break it. Anyway, what I learned this year, which I hadn't ever thought about was if I break it with Bailey, my son right now knows to, to to seal me to Jeff if that hasn't happened. But if I break it with Bailey, I didn't ever know I could get resealed to him. But the rule states that you can be sealed to anybody that you were married to, which means now Nate can seal me to Bailey after I'm dead, Hmm. if I break it. And that's brought me a lot of comfort that, okay, if I really screw up right now, I have not screwed up my eternity. Yeah. Or his. Or his, anybody's, that everything can be fixed. And that's the biggest one that I never understood that I got this year. So let me highlight some of those technicalities you mentioned that if heaven forbid something tragic happened and you you and Jeff were, were taken from, from existence here, you could then be sealed together. After a woman's dead, she can be sealed to anyone she was married to. Okay. And we do that every day. But that day doesn't the require that they they also break the ceiling with, with Bailey. Correct. There, you would just have Multiple. two ceilings on the records and in the eternities that will get ironed out somehow. Which we do every day in the temple currently. Right. For women that came across the plains and she went through three husbands across the plains, we go and we seal her to every single one of them because we don't know who. Right. So we're doing it already in the temple. They just happen to be dead. So I have to wait till I'm dead. Right. And so that's a comforting message to you, knowing yes. that you can move forward with breaking the ceiling with with Bailey and creating a ceiling with Jeff, knowing that maybe in the eternities, if if that was the wrong mistake, you can still rectify can that. Yeah. Right. And I did not get that until this year. And Twenty that, years of working <laughs> right. through this. And on you know the first month at least to hear that that or, or you know once you take that step of okay I'm going to start dating. Having that information saying can give you a lot of confidence and freedom yeah. just knowing that you go and you find a wonderful young man to marry, knowing that we're probably going to break that seal or maybe we won't. I don't know. Whatever happens, knowing confidence, this is all going to work out, right? It goes back to faith. Yeah. If you can just have faith that everything will work out. Right. Right. It's hard. Yeah. Easier said than done. But. Are there any other uh, technicalities with like just that a, a wife can be sealed to multiple men after she's gone? Any other technicalities that you discovered along this journey, maybe earlier on? They're not coming to my mind, but they might. Okay. <laughs> but those are, the, I think those are the main ones. Yeah, that, that is the main one because we're just always concerned that, man, you know, because it's a whole different, you talk about disloyalty. When it is a divorce, there's already been disloyalty established in that relationship. You know, the, we do not want this to carry on. But it's a mutual decision, you know, hopefully, and and that ceiling can be broken. Everybody's happy with it or or can move on, right? But with this, nobody's upset or disloyal to somebody. And I'm 
just going to throw this out here, even though it's totally not in the right vein. Okay. <laughs> I now have a son who is sealed currently to my first husband who oh, belongs to my second husband. Because my first, my I'm still sealed to my first husband. So my son Nate was born in the covenant, and with the covenant with the with the Bailey, covenant yeah. with Bailey, because that's where my sealing is. It goes with the mother, and so so is that on his church records? He think? says that he's born in the covenant. Yeah, that's right. So if I break my sealing to Bailey and uh-huh. get remarried or get sealed to Jeff, technically, what I have learned again, I got. This information from a member of the Salt Lake Temple Presidency whose daughter was in a similar situation, but he said, you'll kind of have to cross the hurdle when you get there, is I said, then does Nate get sealed to Jeff? Technically, no, because he's already born in the covenant. You might be able to petition to have a sealing done, uh-huh. but it's kind of for show. Interesting. So Interesting. I'm not sure because that's my next hurdle that I've got to really research that I need to figure out because I know that would mean a lot to Jeff that his son is sealed to him and not to some right. other man. And this is where our uh, our mortal brains sort of get in the way because we think like, okay, so is your son, he's going to have to go live in a house with your first husband somewhere in heaven. Or, But that's not that's not what the, the born in the covenant means. I mean, it all goes back to, you know, the house of Abraham and being in that covenant rather than, well, this is really your dad. But wait, no, I thought Jeff was my dad. No, I, no right? We get caught up in those details. And luckily, Nate, we have been talking about this since he was born. I uh-huh. mean, I have made sure that he knows all of this so it doesn't catch him off guard yeah. when he's in primary and talking about ceilings. And he's like, but my parents have a picture of themselves married on a beach, you know? Uh-huh. But they see us going to the temple. They know that we've worked at the temple. They, he knows that this is important. But he, I, when Jeff and I got, were getting, deciding to get married, I had so many people say, you have to break your ceiling because you've got to be sealed to Jeff so that kids are born in the covenant. And I said, I will never break that for them. This isn't about my kids. My kids will be fine. My kids are yeah. going to be born in the covenant and... That it's not about them because in the hereafter, they're not living with me and Jeff. They're going to be living with their spouses and they're going to come over for dinner. So it doesn't matter as long as they're sealed in this big family. And that's where it goes back to. This has to be about Jeff and I. This has to be about us or me and Bailey and not about anybody else. Nate will be taken care of. And it's not that I'm being callous. He is fine. And he, he needs to worry about his partner. Yeah, I think that's a great advice that uh, for leaders to to hear that when uh, you know that new couple is is together, make the focus about them. Don't worry about these technicalities or try and do that the spiritual calculus about how this will all all work out. But just make it about them because that's where the strength and long lasting progress right. in, in this world is going to happen is between them, right? And I can't tell you how much I have. So I ran a support group when I moved out here. I got a huge widows group that I was running out here. And I know one girl that the husband, the second husband insisted that they cancel their marriage or cancel the ceilings before they get married. It wasn't going to happen otherwise. So she did very reluctantly, did not want to do it, did not feel right about doing it, but went ahead and did it anyway. In a year, they were divorced. So Mm. now all of a sudden- Now what? Exactly. Which is why I really wanted to be certain. It wasn't that I was worried about Jeff, but- this is a big deal. Yeah. This is a big deal. And it wasn't at all about me being hesitant with Jeff, but I wasn't, to me, they one was not contingent on the other. And I was lucky that Jeff said, 
I said, I'm not really willing to break my ceiling until I have a confirmation from the spirit and from Bailey. And I know I can get those Yeah, because I have every right to ask for that. Yeah, And you should have the same confirmation. And when we both have those confirmations that it's time, then we, let's consider yeah. it. And if it never comes, that's okay. That's right. right. And it's been 15 years, 16 years. I mean, we've been together 17 years, but married for 15 and a half. It's finally come that we both feel like, and I'm, I know I'm resisting it, but it's, I've been working on this since January, kind of now really thinking about maybe breaking this. Mm -hmm. And it's awful. It yeah. is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing I was going to mention is who knows what's happening on the other side of the veil that right. maybe there's some courtship happening and maybe he's found somebody and he's sort of wrestling with the same, the same thing that, you know, well, now I sort of want to be sealed to this person, you know, and, and Tony well, wants to be married. To I was person. blessed that the night that he died, maybe it was the next night, but I think it was the night he died. I remember having a dream and I saw the other girl. Wow. And we were all standing there with Christ, there was five of us, the two of us, me and my next husband and Bailey. And, and I remember this woman looking at me saying, thank you for taking care of my husband when I couldn't. Wow. And I remember my husband saying, thanks for spending that time with me when I couldn't be with her. And it was this loving exchange that we were just taking care of each other until we could all be with the right people. And I knew that there would be a bond between the four of us forever because of what we did for each other. And at the time, I didn't know who I'd be with. I didn't know if I'd be with Bailey or the next husband. I just knew, and I can picture exactly what she looks like, but I knew there was going to be another woman. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think I love that message that, that communicates that really, that again, the ceiling, the new and everlasting covenant goes back to our father, our, our, our heavenly parents. You know, that's where... That's that's well, that's the ceiling that matters, and you all have that opportunity, that's right. and it's beautiful. That's, that's the right. beauty of the, the gospel, right? Um, where was I going to go next? Let's see. Cool. So, just mainly keeping the focus on the the current couple that's happening. Make sure there's strength there, because, like you said, that you know that one instance where the ceiling was broken. They do not, from what I understand, they do not allow a living person to be sealed to a deceased person, right? I've heard of that happen. Okay. So, but nonetheless, that may be, again, it's just going to be a lot more difficult if that divorce happens. And then they're like, well, actually, I do want to be married to my my late husband, right? And I don't know if they would do that part, but I have heard once that they got married and then the spouse died, but they weren't remarried. Right. So, I'm not sure what would happen. Yeah. But the other one. So, the thing that I, I'm gaining from all this is like, keep the covenants, the ceilings intact as long as you can, even... When those uh, marriages go with somebody else until maybe that spiritual confirmation comes and then the process can be taken to break right. those ceilings and and create a ceiling between that that new uh, couple, right? But you also mentioned that thing to be aware of uh, just as far as the process goes that the process of breaking ceilings is often designed because 95% of these, 99% maybe, of these uh, ceilings that are broken are often because of divorce. And so a leader going through this will see that there, you may have to make some phone calls or be very specific that this isn't a ceiling that's being broken because of a divorce. It's a ceiling that's broken because of a someone died. So I don't know what it's like for a divorcee going through this process. It used to be that you wrote these letters and everything mm -hmm. was taken care of through letters, but now everything is done electronically. Right. 
that just changed recently within the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. everything is so to break a ceiling, you go to the ceiling cancellation portal. And to even get access to that portal, you get it through your bishop. So you have a stock with your bishop. The bishop knows exactly what why you're breaking the ceiling. And if he doesn't feel like you should, I'm sure, he doesn't send you the link to the portal. Right. So yeah. so by the time you've gotten to this portal, you've already had conversations with your ecclesiastical leaders. Right. And there's only one portal for breaking your ceiling, but there's only there's two types of people that are going to go there to break their ceiling, and one is a divorce man or woman is going to go there, or it's for a widow because a, a widower will never have to ask for a cancellation of ceiling because he can get sealed to the next one and keep the first intact. Right. So you've really only got two sets of people: a widow, a woman, or a divorcee. And so the the hardest problem. For the widow, just to set this up, even asking for this is gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. You didn't end this marriage because you didn't love them anymore. So to have to ask to break the ceiling is awful. In fact, most of my widows have said it's worse than the death itself mm. because you feel like you're betrayal. You're a bad person. You are, you're betraying your first husband that you love and loved. That love doesn't go away. So you still love them. And you are being asked to take this most precious thing from them right now. Yeah. So it's awful. And so then for the widow, they get sent to this portal that is designed for a divorcee. On the opening page of this portal, there are four bullet points that says, basically, if you want to go, if you're going to go through this portal, it's for these. And here's what you're going to be asked during this. And the four bullet points are the reason for your divorce. And it uses the word divorce. Mm-hmm. Second one is, what's the reason for breaking your ceiling? Well, if you're a widow, there's only one reason to break your ceiling, and that's to get remarried. So even though that could apply, we don't need that because there's only one reason that we'd be going to the portal in the first place. The next one is, if have there been any transgressions since? And I guess the widow could have fallen off the deep end, yeah. but typically that's not why they're here. Right. Transgressions usually are happening because of divorce. I mean, that's usually where it's going to lie is with the divorce, not the widow. And then the fourth one is, are you living up to your financial obligations of alimony or child support? It's financial things, again, related to divorce. So the moment you go to this portal, it's not designed for the widow. And so every step of the way that you're going through this portal, you're not only feeling like you're betraying your first husband, that you are an awful person for even thinking about doing this. But then you go to a portal that's not designed for you, that forgets about the widow at, at, on almost every single page. There's pages that show the information of your for, of the husband and has a divorce date, but there's no date. And again, this is a database, right. but there's no death date. So again, you feel left out. So over and over, you just feel like you're being left out. And it, that's the thing is the, we have these traumatic situations and then we take paperwork and- Make it <laughs> more traumatic. Right, exactly. And, and paperwork's paperwork. There's no emotion there, but it can cause a lot of emotion, right? And so I think this is helpful for a leader to understand that if they do have a young widow and they're going through this process or any t- age of widow, that sending them to that portal can be uh, triggering to some extent, just recognizing that- you know, maybe there's some additional help that can be made place because it is designed for the divorcee, right? And I'll tell you the biggest problem with this one that the bishop needs to know. There is a 
after they finally got it all done and they send it in, it will almost always come back because there is a, there is a part in the cancellation process that says you have to get a letter from the other partner. So pretty much every one of the bishops skipped that because the depart, the partner's dead, right? So they send it off and it gets rejected because the letter's not there. It gets sent back because it does not say that you now have to contact somebody from the deceased families to write that letter. Mm. And I can't tell you how many bishops have reached out to the deceased family without the widow knowing. Mm. Now, the widow has not talked to the family about the fact that they're breaking the ceiling. Yeah, I can be very sensitive. So now all of a sudden, you have just blown up a relationship because this family has been contacted. They are being told that the ceiling is being canceled. Now, in an ideal world, the widow should have known this to talk to them, but sometimes sometimes it's been, like for me, it's been 20 years. So I know this because I've been doing this for a long time, but for the normal person that hasn't been doing the research like I have, I don't know that she would have thought about contacting this family that she really hasn't been in contact with for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so now the bishop reaches out to those members of the family and those family members reach out to the widow and say, what the heck is going on? Yeah. And I can't tell you how many relationships really have been ruined. And it's super sensitive. So I have told my bishop, I have not talked to my in-laws about this. It's going to devastate them. Even though they're not active members of the church, they they got baptized when my husband was like three or four. Mm-hmm. They stayed active for six months and then left the church. So they don't really know much about the church, but they do know that the ceiling is huge and important and definitely don't want this to happen. And they probably know that it was important to their son. Correct. Right? Yeah. So for me, I'm going to actually take a flight. I'm going to fly down to Arizona and have this conversation with them. But I want to do this conversation. I don't want this to come from my bishop. That's right. Mm -hmm. I want to broach this because I already have a tenuous relationship with them, but I don't want to break it because I am still their biggest link with the church and I want to be able to be have some influence in that life. So my bishop, I have been super clear (laughs) that when I do this, when it comes time to have to do that letter, I'm the one that reaches out to the family, please don't do that. And luckily he knows, but for any other person, they wouldn't have known to tell that bishop. And that's just paperwork. They're just doing the next thing in the line. So there's just some really sensitive things when it comes to a widow that they're not understanding. And, and even like with the portal, these four, four bullets that are so insensitive for a, a divorcee that is super excited to be done with this relationship. There is nothing wrong with the portal. It's fantastic because they just want to be done. But for the widow that this is awful for, every page is pain. Mm. And so even if there was just a different landing page for a widow that just said, we understand this is a really difficult process and we just know that the Lord will work everything out for you. It's all they have to say. And now all of a sudden I can breathe a little bit aside because the leaders have said it's going to be okay. Yeah. So anyway, just for the the bishop listening to this. Yeah. I, I love those little caveats that they're little things that seems like paperwork at times, but these can be really important and can save a lot of heartache for everybody involved if, if it's handled a little bit carefully. Right. My friend from 9-11 just got married a year ago. It took her that long hmm. and she had to go through this process and she cried and bawled Took her probably a week to get through the the process, even though it's not a long process. 
but because she was crying so hard. Mm. And the questions that she was asked to write about were not said in a, they were totally fine again for a divorcee, but with a little sensitivity, they would have worked better for a widow. But for her, it was absolutely worse than the death. And she had a public death. I mean, yeah. you can't get much worse than the 9-11, right? right? So just watching her go through that. Yeah. If there's any way to soften this for people, just use some compassion. Yeah. So especially for the ecclesiastic leaders working with the widow, even if for me that's been 20 years, I can still get emotional because I took this seriously. Yeah. So we just need to tread lightly. Yeah. And I, I know that you, you want to make sure that this, we're, we're not criticizing like the IT department of the church that they're doing this wrong. I mean, it's a they form. made some changes. It's a form. It is what it is. it is. And we're not saying the church should change that or what not, but I think it's helpful for the leader to be aware of how the individual is responding That's to right. this process so they, they can be there for them and That's support right. and, and help them through it. And I'm sure maybe fill out the form for them or, or something, you know, like there's ways to maybe go around it so that- Or uh, fill it out together or yeah. just, yeah, there's just certain things. Or give them a heads up. Hey, I want you to know this form is designed for divorce people. Which might be helpful because when it comes to the transgression part, her mind was- wow, is me breaking a ceiling of transgression? Mm. She's not thinking about the transgressions that most people are thinking about. She's thinking, oh my gosh, breaking this is a transgression. So we just twist things a little bit different. So you're right. It's just a little bit of sensitivity from the leaders. But I would say that from the very beginning. My first sit down with my bishop, he was telling me about how he completely understood because his mom just died. And I went, you have no clue. Yeah. I know you're trying to be really sympathetic with me, but your mom dying is not the same as my husband died and now I'm alone for the rest of my life and I see myself growing old by myself because I'm not going to have kids and I'm never getting married again. Yeah. Yeah. We, there's that's sort of an empathy trap when we sort of try and compare our right. life to others, you know. <laughs> right. And and so I just say that just be careful especially with the young widow. Yeah. That sees her entire life gone where I talked about going to a support group for the 60 and younger. After that eight weeks was up, I got to go to another support group that all of these eight-week groups funneled into. And so everyone came together. And I sat next to this woman that had to have been in her 80s or 90s. And she talked about how how devastating it was because she spent 80 years with him. And now the next two or three years, she was going to be without him. When I was thinking... I got to spend two or three years and I get to spend the next 80 years without them. Mm. And so it's so such a different perspective for right. somebody that's older than somebody that's the young widow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no two situations alike in this. It, that's right. It's the way it is. Anything else with that process of, you know, the technicalities, the paperwork, the policies, anything like that, that would be worth mentioning. I think we've, seems like we've covered it pretty good. well. Okay. I'm curious to know just what it is like, you know, because I look at your life. I mean, I, I love Jeff. He's great. He's a friend of mine. And it uh, seems like, you know, you have a, a beautiful son and life's good. And But what is that like with, because uh, there is a point, obviously, emotionally, you get past some things, past some hurdles, but does it creep up again? I mean, for that leader out there that has the, the married couple where one of them was a, a young widow, what should they be sensitive to with that? Not sure for the the leader because I don't have it come up a ton at church, but for the new husband mm-hmm. or new wife, depending on if it was a widower, I've been really lucky that Jeff will let me talk. But I really try hard to keep that separate. I try not to talk at all about my first husband with Jeff, which can be really hard 
because I do have things that come up sometimes. And I'm lucky that I'm still friends with some of the girls in my widow group because he'll just say, I don't get it. You're going to have to reach out to them. And that's Um, why a support group like that is so crucial. And I haven't, we haven't done this group for years and years, but I have maintained a couple of friendships that I can reach out to, to just say, I'm really struggling because I'm having a bad day and I shouldn't, or I've been thinking about him. And now that I'm thinking about Bailey, I'm feeling like I'm cheating on Jeff because I shouldn't be thinking about another man in this current marriage. And what do you do with their stuff? Because I have like a box upstairs that it's Bailey's stuff, but it's in Jeff's house. And so it still affects us. It's not an everyday thing, but there's times when it creeps up. I'll watch a show and it hits me different than Mm -hmm. it does somebody else. And, And this year it's cropped up a lot because I've been thinking about this a lot this year. But, you know, it's been 20 years and I can still get caught up in a show that it brings me right back to the day he died or back to that first marriage and I feel guilty. So for the new husband, just being patient or the new wife, being patient that this person was a part of our life. And I'm lucky that Jeff and I both talk about the fact that our past relationships have made us who we are and we wouldn't be the person we are for each other if we had not had these other relationships. So he lets me talk about it sometimes, but I'm I'm pretty close-lipped about the first marriage because I don't think it's fair to bring into yeah. the second marriage. But that doesn't mean you, you should be closed-lipped completely. You need right. another outlet for right. that. Yeah, and that's important. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's helpful. So I, I was going to ask, as far as these like uh, support groups, if there was a young, you know, a young widow in a ward that, you know, this, she's obviously just found herself in this state, stage of her life, uh, how should she go about finding a, a support group? Maybe most therapists would, would know where to point them or? I don't know that there are therapists that would know where these are. I'd get online. Mm-hmm. The nice thing is, even if you can't find one near you, there's plenty out there on Facebook. I've been, okay. I have an only child and I don't have anybody in, around me in Salt Lake that has an only child. And you raise children different when they're an only child, but I found a Facebook group and I'm like, oh, I found some people that are yeah. like me. So <laughs> even if you have to find it through Facebook, And I think if you put the word out there, it's amazing to me every time, like when I was trying to find other parents of only children, well, I know somebody, and if you just start networking, you can Mm -hmm. find it. So that's the biggest one. I know there's organizations. I've seen one here in Salt Lake, but there's other ones around. So we're lucky we live in the day of the internet. For that reason, you can find them out there. But I would definitely find some, and I'd try to find somebody, even if they're older, even if they're older and they're not in your exact same situation, I had some of those before I found my niche of people. That was still helpful because yeah. it was still, even when I worked at the temple, I was with other widows and I would talk about it with them and they were 80 and 90 years old and 60 years old and I was only 24, but we got at each other. So reach out. They're there. They're in your ward. We got widows in every ward. So even if they happen to be older than you, just connect with another widow. Awesome. That's helpful. So the last question I have for you is, as you have, whether you like it or not, been forced to really dig into some of this doctrine of sealing and and not just the doctrine, but the rules and policies that surround it, how has that strengthened your your testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's interesting. When uh, Jeff and I decided to get married and we had to get married outside of the temple, there was somebody in his sister's ward that really had a testimony crisis. And I thought, why are you having a testimony crisis? This is my deal and I'm not having a testimony crisis. Why are you? And so as I've been doing this, I've just learned men are fallible. 
and we're in a church that are is run by men. So not everything is going to be perfect, but God is. And so when you get against a wall that you don't really like, see what you can do, but don't let it ruin your testimony. Don't let it shake who you are. And just know that God can fix it on the other side or sometimes even on this side. But stick with your testimony and don't let it shake it. That concludes my interview with Tanya Benyon. I hope that you found it uh, helpful, insightful, maybe gave you some questions to ponder over. Not that Tanya has all the, the answers, and I especially do not have all the answers, but uh, uh, there's a lot to learn here, a lot to consider of situations that maybe you wouldn't expect, but man, I know somewhere someone is going to listen to this and be prepared for that situation when there's a young widow in their ward to step forward and help them feel comfortable, help them feel loved, establish hope, and really walk them through the process so that they can feel like they're not missing out on certain blessings in the eternities because they're not. That's the beauty and love of our eternal Father in heaven who gave us a Savior to make all things right, no matter when we die and who we leave behind. And don't forget, go to leadingsaints.org tour to get more information about the church history tour that's happening in July of 2020. And also, join us on November 16th of 2019 for the Leading Saints Live Conference. It'll be fun to meet you, be there, and learn together. You can see all the details at leadingsaints.org. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.